Welcome to Australian Hiker, your online hiking resource. We're your hosts, Tim and Jill Savage. This is episode 138 of the Australian Hiker podcast. In episode 135, we talked about what it takes to be an adventurer photographer and videographer. In today's episode, we go in a different direction and talk with freelance travel writer Craig Sheather from Albury, New South Wales. Craig is a frequent contributor to a number of print and online magazines, including Great Walks, On the Road and Link Disability. His most recent projects include The Walking Guidebooks, Best Walks of Victoria's High Country, and Best Walks East of Melbourne, which are new to Australia's best-selling walking series by Woods Lane Press and Australian Geographic. So today we are catching up with Craig to find out what's involved in being a guidebook and travel writer. Craig, thank you for taking the time to talk with Australian Hiker. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for having me, and nice to chat to you. Okay, so um, before we talk about travel and guidebook writing, what's your hiking background? Yeah, so as you previously indicated, I'm from Albury, so on the New South Wales-Victorian border, and just like most kids in the country, I grew up spending a lot of time outdoors, camping and fishing and swimming in the Murray River, exploring the bush and nearby national parks and playing a lot of sports. Um, as a kid, I loved sport and mostly focused on Aussie war football, basketball, cricket and soccer. But when I was about 17, I noticed that I was losing strength in my right calf and it became quite noticeable that I was losing muscle bulk in that leg. After a series of tests and consultations with specialists, it was determined that I was actually born with a tethered spinal cord, which may have been caused by a very minor case of spina bifida. It was also found that I've suffered some irreversible nerve damage in that leg, which was causing the muscle wastage. So I underwent major back surgery to address the condition, which led to a pretty lengthy recovery period. And walking became part of my recovery and daily exercise routine. However, the muscle weakness affected my running, so I was no longer able to continue any intense or competitive sport. And I, But over time, I built up enough strength to go on longer hikes than before I knew I was hooked. And that's pretty much how I got into hiking. Um, and then over the past 20 years, I've probably travelled to over 50 countries and completed extensive treks, including Everest Base Camp in the Gokyo region in Nepal. Yep which was my wife Carly's first overseas trip. Um, did South America and back to Peru on a separate trip. I did the Overland track in Tassie, Yosemite, Thailand. And probably one of the most obscure ones was the Sendakan Death March in Borneo, which I did on our honeymoon with <laughs> Carly. So that was pretty, pretty unique, I guess. So, yeah, we had an agreement that I'd... Uh, look after the, the honeymoon and she'd look after the final details of the wedding, the flowers, decorations, all that stuff that I didn't want to really um, be involved with. So, yeah, she caught Borneo, unfortunately, <laughs> in, in the death march, which, uh, yeah, we're the first honeymoon couple to do it. Um, 
so we had three weeks there, but it, yeah, it wasn't all hard yakka. Um, it was a pretty normal honeymoon besides that, some nice resorts and plenty of lounging by the pool, sunset cocktails, great food, snorkeling, swimming, that kind of thing. But for a couple of days, she was, uh, yeah, right in the jungle, covered in mud and leeches and getting soaked by torrential rain. But yeah, it was a great trip anyway. All right, that's, a, yeah, so, that's, that's not a bad way of doing it, actually. I think I would have been happy with that agreement. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so um, that that's pretty much uh, uh, my background. And obviously, more recently, I've been doing a lot of hiking in the, in the high country and the east of Melbourne to produce the, the, the two books, which I've done over the last sort of three years, it's been. Okay, and that was the the best walks east of Melbourne and the best walks of Victoria's high country, which we'll talk about a, a bit later in this episode. Yeah, that's right. So I think you know, certainly, I think the the area you're located there in Albury is actually not too bad because you've, you've you can access Victorian hikes as well as the New hike New South Wales hikes quite quite readily. So I think you're in a in definitely a, a good location. Yeah. So yeah, we have a little second home up at. King Coburn in the Upper Murray as well. So, unfortunately, that whole area is sort of um, yeah on on high alert with the bushfires and even Corryong's kind of obviously in the headlines at the moment. But yeah, my 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 dad actually grew up on a farm just out of Waller in the Upper Murray. So yeah, we used to spend all that a lot of time up there, and also obviously going across to the Alpine National Park on the Victorian side as well, either side of the the river basically. Okay, so how then did you get into travel and guidebook writing? Yeah, so after high school, uh, I moved to Melbourne um, to Big Smoke uh, to complete a business marketing degree. But as soon as I'd finished that, I was pretty keen to, to travel and get overseas. I lived and worked in the UK and travelled around Europe and Africa. And after about two years, I had to come, I had some health issues, so I had to come home again. Um, I had another operation and another lengthy recovery. And while I was recovering, I wanted to do something constructive. So I was thinking, what would be my dream job? And I came up with travel writer. So it was probably as simple as that. I immediately, well, pretty much straight away, enrolled in a travel writing course and completed it, completed it via correspondence while I was recovering. And it all kicked, it all kicked off from there. Okay, I, didn't, I must admit I, I didn't realise there was such a thing as a travel writing course. Yeah, so yeah, there's there's a few there's a few that you can do. So yeah, I, I kind of I did it, and you learn a lot of the basics. So um, yeah, I, I, I did that, and I had intended to go back overseas, but I was pretty broke and needed to save some money, and I ended up securing a job in business banking in Albury. And at the same time, I was just tipping away at the odd travel article for fun. I spent about five years in business banking and then commenced a new job in a government agency in Warby, which is where I still work today, pretty much full-time. So, yeah, the the, the first few articles were for Teen T Backpackers magazine. I don't know if you're ever familiar with that. It was around back in the day. Yeah. So, yeah, that was probably my first articles about 15 years ago. They had a reader section where anyone could enter travel stories in a competition. And then I used those few articles to say that I was a regular writer for TNT, which wasn't entirely true, but it made it easier to pitch those ideas to, to other magazines. Um, yeah, and I'd, I'd go into 
like the the local news agent and search the shelves for any magazines that focus on travel and the outdoors. I'd study the magazines and then send a pitch to the editor with an idea and some examples of my work. And it kind of just grew from there. So I just kind of kept approaching magazines and over the years picked up, yeah, oh, I'll put it on two or three hundred articles, I guess. But a lot of those magazines are no longer on the shelf, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the guidebooks came about a few a few years ago when I was doing an article on a road trip along the entire Murray River, which is about two and a half thousand kilometres long. I had a camping guide to the Murray River, which that was pretty handy to find places to stay along the way. But the guide didn't have any information about sites, attractions, things to do, history. So I pitched an idea to the publisher for another book on the river to include info about that area. Um, but the publisher wasn't overly keen on the, the idea. They didn't think it would sell. So, yeah, they weren't keen on it. But at the time, I was doing a few articles for Great Walks magazine. So we continued discussions and about possible titles and later we agreed that because of my experience with walking and, and I guess with the connection with Great Walks magazine, we agreed to do one on the, 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 the first high country walking guide. So that's how the, the book started and I guess once once you get a foot in the door and that book was done, we um, agreed on the, the east of Melbourne one straight away and sort of went back to back straight away. So yeah, that's how it all started I guess. All right. Now, just picking up on a couple of things that you mentioned through that, you, you were saying you you work full time. Is that is that the case? Yeah. Or, or, I do. Sorry, or sorry, sorry, sorry. When I say full time, you have a full time job as well as travel writing. Pretty much, yeah. So, um, the agency that I work for do have flexible working arrangements. So, I'm pretty much on full time work hours, which I have I have been for the past over years since we had kids um, I do at the moment I do four nine hour days but I still over the years I've also had a day at home with the kids so yeah it's pretty tough to find the time to do it um, the good thing is I do have flexibility I can purchase extra leave which allows me to, to get away and do the hikes and then you know I can I can purchase um, the leave to, to do the riding as well so yeah, I don't really have a designated day for riding. It's just after work, weekends, whenever I can, basically. Um, I do, at the moment, yeah, I, I, I'm at home with the kids, so sometimes I cut a few corners and throw a movie on and spend a couple of hours just, just doing a bit. But, yeah, it's, it's pretty pretty hard to do it full-time at the moment. Um, even getting the books done and having a bit of experience, like you wouldn't want to rely on it as my, my my sort of sole income yeah so how many how many hours a week roughly would you say you spend on travel writing it depends on what projects I'm, I'm working on at the moment it's pretty cool I'm just chipping away at a few magazine articles and also trying to do a little bit of promotion for the the, the books when I'm doing the books yeah it's pretty full on you it's constant so it's just whenever you can find the time so um, oh, I'd be 15 to 20 hours a week. I, I, I would probably do on on top of my sort of 35 hours at, at work as well. Yeah, yeah. 
and and yeah, it's 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 busy, and especially when you've got young kids, yeah, it's it's hard to find the time. But um, I'm now just finding the the right the right balance, I think, because you know you you can get caught up in it, and you can forget that you you got young kids and you have got other responsibilities. So yeah, it's it's good fun, but it's hard work. <laughs> Okay, so um, take us through the process of getting a guidebook or an article to print. Yeah, so with the articles, um, the magazine articles, most of the time I just come up with the ideas and, and pitch them to the editors. Um, there's a magazine called On the Road that I've worked with for quite a while, and they're happy. They're pretty much happy for me to do whatever I want. If we're going on a family holiday, I'll just pitch them an idea on a destination we want to go to, and most of the time they just say, yep, go for it. Um, occasionally I might get invited to do a, a media for Mill, which is a, has a set itinerary and a fairly strict guidelines on what I need to write about. Uh, these are these trips are pretty, pretty rare these days for travel writers because a lot of organisations are now engaged in social media influences and Instagram models, so... Um, no, I won't get into that now, but, you know, you, you can just see that side of social media really, really taking over traditional print. Um, with the guidebooks, there's much more collaboration, but the publisher and the pitch will contain a lot more detail. Yeah. The publisher will research the market and only consider ideas and proceed if they believe that it will, that it will sell. So, um, yeah, it's a pretty long process to get something improved. Um, now that I've done a few books and developed a good relationship with the publisher, they are now starting to come to me with specific projects. So um, whether it be updating an existing book or working on a new book idea together. All right. So you've you've gone through and released two guidebooks over the last couple of years. Uh, the first, as you mentioned, was The Best Walks of Victoria's High Country. Uh, and the one you released, I think it was just before Christmas, was uh, Best Walks East of Melbourne. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So the first high country one came out in towards the end of October the year before, twenty eighteen, and then yeah, the the east of Melbourne one came out about November twenty nineteen. So about a year apart. So, so by the sound of it, you're taking roughly about a year from um, uh, to sort of develop and write and get it to publish. Is that does that that sound right? Yeah, about that. Um, yeah, I, I started the second one before, probably in about September, um, while the other one was still at the printer. So roughly about a year, depending on obviously how close it is to home. So the high country was, you know, it was right at my doorstep. So I could do a lot of day trips or weekend trips, whereas the east of Melbourne, or to get down to Wilson's Prom, was six hours. So I did. I did churn out a few weeks down there. Um, I had a, about 10 days on my own. I'd go down there with a few mates for three or four days. Carly and the kids would come down for a holiday and would, would, would you know, would, would do it in blocks rather than just day trips. But, um, yeah, it was about the same time for each book, yeah. 
Now, um, you know, with both of these these walks, uh, and we uh, we uh, uh, as this podcast goes to air, we have reviewed uh, both of these books, and we'll have those uh, the information on where you can purchase the books uh, on on our website. Uh, but with with both these books, you've actually got um, their full color guides or guides to forty fantastic walks. Is, is that roughly about the the number you decided you were going to do, or is that something you agreed with the publisher uh, on these ones? Yeah, it's it's tough because there's a lot more good walks in both those areas. So yeah, it's just what the what we agreed on and what can actually fit within those 300 pages. So, um, you know, there's hundreds of walks that that could actually go in a, in a book, but the le- the level of detail um, required of, of what we were trying to achieve. Um, yeah, so we we agreed that 40 was a good number, and then obviously within the book. The ones that we don't have in detail are either mentioned as side trips or options or other hikes in the area. And I must admit, you know, look, looking at both of these books that I've got here in front of me, they they really are well set out. They uh, uh, we'll we'll certainly use them as as we get down into Victoria later this year to do some walking. Uh, and yeah, it's it's very well set out. It's easy to easy to go through and uh, uh, and understand what you're talking about. Uh, and I think that's the thing. Yeah. With it. With a lot of guidebooks, you go from sometimes they can be very technical and other times they can be almost a bit of a fluff piece, but these are a good balance between the two. Yeah, well, that's good to hear. And I think there's a, a lot of variety in them. So you can, if you even if you're at a basic level starting out, you can work your way through the grades. So there's, you know, the easier ones, there's village walks, and you can kind of work your way through the grades and get up to the more moderate and harder ones. So. Yeah, and and that's kind of when we're choosing those forty walks, you're considering sort of those different levels. So you want to have we want to have a bit of variety, so we you know we we don't have fifteen hard walks and only a couple easy ones. There's kind of there's a balance between the the grades. Which, yeah. yeah, which makes it work. All right, no, that's good. That's good. Um, now let's talk about the the highlights and the lowlights of travel and guidebook writing. Um, What's been your most enjoyable article or guidebook to create and why? Um, look, probably the, the the most excitement I've had is probably doing my first article and the first book. So, yeah, the first when you when you've got in your hand your first article, um, it's pretty exciting. And and I and looking at it now, I never really knew where it was going to lead. Um, and you know, I started that 15 years ago, and and I've kind of just progressed through where I'm at the level now that I'm capable of of doing the book stuff. And then first, and and then having the first book, the High Country one, was yeah, a bit of a buzz as well. So they're probably just just, just standouts, I guess, just for achievement purposes. Um, yeah, there's. I was cleaning the office the other day, and there were, I, I come across a magazine that I did an article for, which was called um, Walkabout Magazine. I've just got it in front of me now, and it's a um, uh, just a walking magazine, but it's out of Portland in the USA. So I must have just googled them a few years ago. I googled walking magazines, and it come up. I, I, I sent a pitch to the editor, and I said, "Yep, go for it." So the article is basically about. Um, a, a trip that I did to Peru and it's titled Walking Toward Lifelong Friends and 
Yeah, I did a trip to Peru and we were going to do the classic Inca trail, but it was booked out. We did the Lares trek. They had a local guide that came with us and his name was was Javier. Yep. And, yeah, he, he was pretty knowledgeable. He was a really personal kind of guy and I kind of started hanging out with him a bit at the back of the group. And you'd go into farmhouses or little communities and they'd just invite you in their houses and, you know, they'd, they'd hug him. They just loved him. He had this real aura about him. Um, and so, yeah, we had a great trip with him. Um, and then as we, I found out at that time he was setting up his own little, um, tour business. And when I got home, I started referring some friends and family to him and not thinking too much of it or not thinking about the impact or consequence of what was really happening. But, um, one of my mates come back a few years later and he said, Oh, did you know that Javier's named his kid after you? <laughs> so, no, I had no idea. So there's this poor little Peruvian kid. He's probably the only kid named Craig in the whole country. <laughs> and, yeah, so he, like, it, it kind of shocked me a bit to think that, you know, the, the impact you have on those local guys' lives is massive. So, yeah, well, I went back there a couple of years ago just to meet him and, yeah, it was awesome um, just hanging out with him. They live at a little village at the bottom of Machu Picchu called Aguas Calientes and it's a, it's a tourist, little tourist village but yeah, we went all to all the local areas and playing soccer with him and took him out for lunches. It was yeah, it was really great. So that article which I found the other day was um, just kind of um, remember, like made me remember how what you can do and how, how good it was to um, you know make, make an impact in someone's life. I must admit, I mean, I've talked to a few people. Um, uh, we talked to a guy called Daniel uh, at the end of last year who was a, a videographer and filmmaker, and he, he said very much the same thing. It's it's very much about the people. You know, the scenery is excellent, but the people, are uh, the relationships you build, um, uh, you know, it's almost incidental, but it, it almost becomes the highlight of what you do. Yeah, uh, I listened to that episode, and, yeah, that was great. Yeah, he um, had some really good points and, and yeah, an interesting um, background and interesting work that he's doing too. What year was it that you did Peru? Do you remember? Uh, I was first there in 2009, and I went back in about 2015, I think. It was, yeah, 2015 maybe. No, that's the, the reason I ask is we, we actually went to do the Inca Trail in 2006 and uh, we thought, oh, we'll wing it, we'll just turn up and, and book on. And, you know, we got to New, got as far as New Zealand Airport, uh, the airport in New Zealand, and, and we're told, oh, no, it's been booked up for months. So we, we, we did an yeah. alternate route, which was the Salkantai track at that time because of for that same reason. So uh, Yeah, it, it, yeah, that's right. You, you have to, they, they have permits, like uh, a quota of permits. So you do if you really want to do it, um, you need to, to get in early. Um, but I've been back there twice and I haven't done the classic Inca. Um, one trip at Matt, I've been to Machu Picchu twice, but I've done, yeah, a couple of alternate routes around the, the Andes in that area, um, which have been stunning, mind you. Like, yeah, I know you get the, um, the history and it's an iconic kind of walk, the, the Inca one, but, um, yeah, the, we did the Lares and I've done Huchikuska and I, and Javier had one of his guys take me up to this, to this other village, which isn't even a, you know, an alternate route. We stayed with a, with some, um, people on a farm and we just hiked along the, randomly along the, the mountains there. It was pretty awesome. So yeah, that's, I guess that's the difference between 
um, whether you go on those iconic walks or, or whether you get off the beaten track a little bit. Yeah, I must admit, yeah, sometimes the, the iconic walks and doing it doing it as it's as everyone knows is a good thing to do. Other times, as you say, you can get real surprises and some really good trips, and and probably not so 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 busy. Um, you know, and you're not dealing with you know tens of people or hundreds of people on a on a trail at the same time. So, yeah, that's right. And I think the the Inca the classic Inca can get yeah pretty crowded, and there's people you know on the stairs or climbing past you if you're if you're a bit slow and you know there's a bit more rubbish um um so it's obviously one of the world's greatest hikes and yeah a lot of people want to do it but you know if you miss out it's not the end of the world there's some other good stuff in that area as well okay so we, we've talked about the highlights of um of of uh, doing guidebooks and travel what's what's the downside it, it sounds like from what you were saying is uh uh, you spend a lot of time for not a, a huge return is probably possibly one of them. Yeah, it's look. Yeah, I, I, I do it for the love of it, and I'm at the stage now that I'm, you know, I can supplement my income, but I wouldn't be able to rely on it as a full time job. Yeah. Um, just just purely because of opportunities and and I guess competition. Um, look at the newspapers. You know, they have a really centralised travel section that even gets sent out to the country areas like we get the you know the, the same travel escape magazine or um, content that the, the city papers do so we don't even have local travel writers in the country papers a lot of the the um, yeah the magazines are flying off the shelf um, because everything's going online and there's just probably not the opportunities and it's really unstable to, to be a freelancer I think and you know, at, at times I think oh, I'm, I'm making okay money here, and I'm I'm writing for four or five magazines at the one time. But all of a sudden, two of them go off the shelf. Another one gets a new editor, and they restructure, and yeah, then again, and next minute you're starting from scratch again. So it's um, pretty unstable. But um, my approach is, I guess, that you know I do it for the love of it, and it's a good work-life balance, and any income that kind of comes with it is just a bonus. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now you mentioned before we started this interview you were going to make an offer in relation to the books. What was that about? Yeah, so as we speak, um, there's obviously a, a lot going on in the high country and um, you know, I've spent a lot of time up there in the in the Upper Murray and Alpine Park and all around that area, so... I feel a bit helpless at the moment, but um, one thing that I'm going to do, I've, I've, I've donated, and I'm and I'm going to donate also donate 100% of the profits of, of both books or any book sales until the end of January. So if anyone would like a a book, um, if they could get in touch with me directly, if if they buy it through the publisher or, or Bookopia or something like that, then they're not aware of what I'm doing at the moment. But I, I, I do have a back and I do wholesale the book, so I can distribute it myself. Um, so if anyone wants a book, um, they can probably email me or you know, inbox me or something, and and I'll send it out. And 100 percent of those profits will go to a um, the Red Cross, which covers all states. So um, yeah, that's 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 all I can do at the moment. Uh, another thing that we're going to do, we're going to plan a family trip to Queensland 
about mid-year. Um, we're going to cancel that and we're just going to go on a road trip through the high country and spend our money there because hopefully these fires will, will, will die down soon, but it doesn't look like it. they could actually boom for another couple of months. So once it does die down and it's all over, they're going to need our support. And uh, I think that's one way that maybe we think about how we're going to spend our money on our next holiday and, um, yeah, if you could go there, you'll. If you haven't been there, you'll be able to see the fire damage. But a lot of the the villages, hopefully, will be saved, and they have so much good history and food and wine and that kind of thing. So you'll you'll have a ball. So just something to think about, anyway. Oh, that's good. I definitely agree. So we'll we'll go through if uh, people are interested in um, in helping support that. Uh, I'll go through and put uh, Craig's contact details, websites, uh, social media contacts, uh, and email address in the show notes. Uh, so if you want to help out with that one and, and help support the bushfire uh, uh, relief, um, that's an option opportunity for people to to contribute to that. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks, Tim. Yeah. It's, um, the website's just getting updated as we speak. It, it, it probably should be alright by the time this goes live. But um, yeah, maybe the best best um, way might be just to send, shoot me an email. Not a problem, as I said. I'll, I'll, all the contact details will be there, so it will make it easy for people to get hold of you. Beautiful. Uh, okay, now what would you recommend to anyone considering a career in travel or guidebook writing? Yeah, look, as I was saying, like, it, it's it's tough, but. If you want to take the risk, I'd say go for it. But um, yeah, don't give up your, your day job. Um, it's pretty hard to make a living out of it as a full-time travel writer. The as I said, the print industry is pretty is dying a bit of a slow death, and online platforms are really take platforms are really taking over. And I, and a lot of professional writers I know still hold full-time or part-time jobs, and others are taking on. Other writing work such as editing, proofreading, copywriting, marketing, marketing material, um, just to supplement their income. Um, but there's a, there's a few ways you can get published, and you can set up your own online blog, obviously, and write about whatever you want. You can enter writing competitions. You can approach existing websites or bloggers to to write guest articles, and if you're interested in magazines, I'd say research and identify the ones that really suit your interests and writing style and then contact the editor to see if they're accepting freelance articles or if they're looking for new material. Um, you obviously wouldn't pitch a family holiday about Bali to an extreme adventure magazine, so really target um, the magazine and the audience. And be patient. I've learned that editors and publishers are, are very busy and it's Sometimes takes a long time to get a response, and you may not get a response at all. Yeah, uh, I, suppose, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? If you've got tens or hundreds of people pitching ideas, they can't always afford to, to respond as an email uh, to everybody. So, yeah, that's right. And yeah, you know, for instance, I I was thinking what my next project was going to be, and I recently did a children's book writing course and had a couple um, sort of outdoor themes that I'd um, converted into into these kids' books and sent sent them all off and you get a you get a response or you don't get a response but sometimes you get an acknowledgement it could take up to six to twelve months to actually get a notification so yeah, yeah it's a while it's, isn't it <laughs> yeah. it is yeah uh, that, um, 
I was going to say that that just prompts a um, another question. Have you ever been in a situation where you've had too much work on? You've you've been you know you've been working on a book or an article, and all of a sudden you get a bit of a flood of, re- of requests, and you've got to you've got to try to schedule a bit, or does it the work tend to space itself out a bit better? Yeah, no, it, 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 there are times where yeah things things come in that I, I t- try not to knock back too much, but um, if I can handle it. But yeah, there's times where you know, with if I was doing the book, there'd be other magazine stuff coming in, um, so it's just a, a, a juggling act to to make sure that you can get it all done. Um, one of my biggest. <laughs> Not a regret, but I couldn't go. Like I had a media to mill opportunity to do a few days, or expenses paid for in a pretty fancy resort in Fiji. But I had other things on that I was committed to, so I knocked that one back. Um, but yeah, it's at the moment for me, it's it's a, it's a little bit quieter um, with the book coming out, and I and I've because I've been really focused on on the book, um, the writing side of it. Now I'm kind of Doing a little bit more in, in the sales and exposure space, I, I guess. So um, that's sort of the other side of the the, the book stuff that um, I'm not sure if your listeners want to know about. But I have the opportunity to, I guess, be involved with the sales as much as possible. So I, I act as a bit of a sales agent for the publisher, and I can wholesale it and I sell it on my website. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I can also approach visitor centres and gift shops and, and sell it to them. Uh, if I didn't want to, if I just wanted um, to get a standard royalty, then I, I wouldn't do anything. And you know, I'd just get a, a, the royalty for all the sales that go through the publishers and Dimmicks and all the other bookshops. Yeah, yeah. So, 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 so you can basically be as involved as much or as little as you like by the sound of it. Yeah, that's right. And it's you know, I've tried a few few markets. Up at Bright, um, I've done one in Melbourne. I've been, I've done one up at the Man from Snowy River Festival at Corryong last year. Um, there for for the amount of time and effort you put in, you know, I've kind of realised I really need to. One thing that I need to do is get more involved in the social media space and target hiking groups and forums and chats and that kind of thing. Because you can just do that at home, laying in bed, rather than putting up a gazebo and tables and, and you know being a real salesman to try and, and, and sell them so um, yeah the, the social media space as far as sales going is, is probably an area that I need to work on yeah it's a, it's a it, it's it's a bit of a rabbit hole that one you can spend almost as much time doing social media as you can do the uh, uh, the actual work itself so <laughs> good luck with that yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. okay now um, so, Sorry, go on. I was just going to be say yeah, but be be patient with the um. If if you do send something off, you never know if you'll get a response or not. And once once you once you get a foot in the door, kind of things can start to snowball a bit. Um, and I think as I said earlier, if you if you're really serious about writing, I'd recommend completing a professional writing course. So uh, just to understand the basics of the industry, the Australian Writers Centre offers. Uh, the, the Australian Writers Centre offers travel writing course, and it can be done online or in a classroom. And Lonely Planet, yeah, have a have a book titled How to Be a Travel Writer, and it has plenty of info and advice and tips. Um, yeah, so once you build up a bit of a catalogue of articles, it makes it easier to pick 
pitch those and once you've got the experience you can you can you can show that to an editor which kind of it's easier to pick up jobs once you, you get your first few done. Yeah. And sometimes it's a simple case as being, you know, in, in the right place at the right time and being able to get hold of the right person. Yeah, I think that's that's often the case, isn't it? You can be you can be very lucky and or, or you can work very hard and, and and sometimes it's a bit of a combination of both. Yeah, that's right. And and I guess if you if you're interested in, in book writing or the guidebook, I think if you if you're starting from scratch without any experience it'd be pretty unlikely that a publisher would engage anyone to write a book. You really do need to have some runs on the board before you consider a book. I was talking to uh, a local author uh, recently, and she travelled all around the world. She was a professional travel writer, working for CNN and New York Times, and all over the world, Singapore. Um, and she'd been trying to get books published for years, and she'd just got a first children's one published now, and it was partnership publishing, so it was a lot of her um, own investment to get it up and running. But that's opened the door for her to. Um, She's got other offers from other publishers now, so yeah, um, yeah, it's kind of one of those things that can snowball once, once, once you nail the first one. Yeah, no, that's 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 definitely a good recommendation there. Okay, so now one final question: What's your bucket list hike? If you can do any hike or go anywhere, where would it be and why? Yeah, so I've ticked off a few, which I probably mentioned earlier, but. Kokoda is probably the one that still sits at the top. Uh, it was something I was going to do last year for my 40th birthday, but I've been too busy with the books over the past few years to to, to even consider it. Um, it's obviously very challenging and iconic, historic, emotional trek. So, um, yeah, it's it was it's been at the top of my list or, or around the mark for a while, but. For me, it's probably knowing and understanding my limitations and I need to be mindful of my health. Given the weakness in in my leg, it'd be a massive challenge to even do the required training and uh, preparation to complete Kokoda. And with young kids and other projects on the horizon, I simply can't dedicate the necessary time to complete the required training. So I do love the mountains, but I might need to focus on something a bit more suited to my capabilities. Um, maybe a long road trip along the Rocky Mountains from Boulder and Colorado to Banff in Canada or something like that. Plenty of hiking along the way, of course. But yeah, it's, yeah. If I if I had the time, I, I could probably, I'd be confident in doing Dakota. But given the amount of training and preparation involved, yeah, it's a big commitment. And, and even though I've, I've been away a lot over the last three years, I'm not going to dive into that straight away either. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. I must admit, I uh, I had some involvement with Kokoda uh, a few years ago, and um, uh, it it surprised me that the large number of people who do no no training whatsoever, uh, and then wonder why they come unstuck uh, when <laughs> when you know they've gone from being never walked in their life to doing a a a, a long. Uh, humid uh, and sometimes arduous walk, um, yeah, doing the training and, and, and knowing what your limitations are is definitely a good way to go. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, it's not only the conditions, but, you know, it's, it's not along the plateau. It's up and down, up and down the whole yeah. way. So, yeah, you, you really do need to be prepared, don't you? Yeah. 
Okay, so we've been talking with Craig Sheeter uh, and finding out what's involved with being a guidebook and travel writer. Craig, thank you for your time. Thanks a lot for having me, Tim, and uh, yeah, keep up the good work. I yeah, listen to your podcast and I'll keep an eye on what you're up to too. Thanks a lot. No problem. So that was our interview with Craig Sheeter, who's recently produced two books, uh, uh, the first being The Best Walks of Victoria's High Country, and the most recent one is Best Walks East of Melbourne. Uh, And we've gone through and done reviews of those uh, on our website. So if you go through and have a look at the link in our show notes, you'll find the full reviews of those. Now, I found it quite interesting talking to Craig, uh, and it it, it raised a lot of similarities with what we do with Australian Hiker. Um, Craig was saying from his perspective uh, in talking about being a travel writer and being a guidebook writer, what was involved. Uh, and he said, you know, basically it's not a, a job where he could he could throw in his full-time job, but it's more just to supplement the income. Um, and certainly it's something he really enjoys doing. Uh, and that's that's something we find to be the same with uh, with what we do with Australian Hiker. Yeah, and I bet if he uh, calculated his hourly rate <laughs> based in, on the, the income he receives from writing and the amount of time and effort he puts into it, it'd be pretty ordinary. It would be well well down below the, um, the minimum wage, I would guess. And I think that's kind of the thing about doing those things that you really enjoy and you're quite passionate about and that really came through when... Craig was talking about um, being a travel writer was his his dream job um, and, you know, he put a lot of effort into preparing himself for that and um, doing courses and, and getting the expertise um, be- before he, you know, embarked uh, full on. So some of the things that Craig talked about, um, uh, he did talk about the, the time he spent and the fact he was doing this as, a, as something he enjoys doing and it does supplement his income. Uh, it provides him a bit of flexibility. Uh, so it means you know, he, this is something he can do in his time off and, and when he's away on holidays. Well, yeah, when he's not spending time with his children and his, his uh, wife. And, and <laughs> I did like, like him talking about his Borneo honeymoon. I'm not quite sure. Tim said he'd, um, he'd be happy with that. I'm not quite sure I would have been happy with that. But then again, I don't think we had a honeymoon. So there you go. So that's that's one up on us. Um the other things that Craig talked about, it was quite interesting. He, uh, as he said, it's the magazines, the book companies, they all go through and get bombarded with emails from people wanting to write articles for them, to submit book ideas. Uh, so they, he, Craig was saying that it's not unusual to put an email in saying, here's an idea I've got, and either not hear back or not hear back for many weeks. Um, so I, I must admit, we, we're probably not as bad as the book companies, uh, but sometimes we you just get so many emails through. It does take a while to respond to people as, as much as we like to do it as quickly as we can. Yeah, I mean, he was talking about 12 months. I mean, you, you'd forget what you submitted, wouldn't you, by that stage? The other thing he talked about was uh, the fact that he'd done a travel writing course, uh, and I think this is one of these things now. There's um, there's travel writing courses you can do online, uh, or you can go to your local TAFEs or universities. Uh, in some instances, if you're in some of the bigger centres, uh, and do courses on travel writing, and I think that's probably the the thing that's that, that's often very different for people. Uh, it's one thing to be able to go through and write articles and say, "Hey, this is 
what I've done and this is how I've enjoyed it. Um, but being able to make it catch people's um, imagination uh, and do it in such a way that, that people want to go through and um, and, and visit those sites and, and or, or um, go to that location. Yeah, and I think, uh, you know, there's that uh, kind of tension between the reality and the fantasy almost and uh, you mentioned fluff pieces um, and I'd, I'd imagine you know the, the travel writing is really about capturing capturing that imagination but not overstepping the mark in terms of what people are expected to um, see when they actually get there or experience when they they do say a walk um, and that was the thing that I liked about the the books it was they're almost a little bit of you know matter of fact in a way um, but they just go there's some good stuff to see here and it's a pretty you know simple plain kind of um, low-key language rather than oh my god this is the most exciting thing in the world and you you know you must go you, you get a sense of why you should go and why you would want to go um, but it doesn't overstate yeah, and that that is, that is important. A lot of the coffee table type books, which have the spectacular full page images, they really inspire you, but they don't actually give you a lot of detail or information. Yeah, and I reckon in some of those, um, I don't know this for sure, and we probably should have um, asked that question on a previous podcast. But some of those images, you know, probably take a lot of time and a lot of photos to get. You know, there's probably hundreds of photos, and that's one out of them. Yeah, and, and I know I know from our perspective, we go for a uh, a hike, uh, albeit you know sort of the the two to sort of ten fifteen kilometres, and we try and do that on a weekly basis. And I'll come back with on average probably a hundred photos because I just snap away, um, uh, and sometimes I'll take three or four photos just to get. Um, I'll, I'll work out. I'll I'll pick the best one when I get back. Um, you know, if you're doing this, and in the case of each of these books that Craig's written. Uh, 40 walks, uh, yeah, I'm guessing there's probably an awful lot of photos that, that's associated with that that he's got to clean up, tidy up, and then and go through and submit for publishing. So I think, as I said, I hope that's been a bit of um, uh, uh, of an idea of what's involved with being a travel writer. And I'm sure everybody's story is different. Uh, other travel writers will probably have a lot of similarities in some cases, but there'll be um, some differences depending on how they propose on doing things. Now, one final thing I would like to mention here is Craig has actually mentioned uh, in the podcast, and we'll just reinforce that now, uh, that if you go through and buy the books, these two books from his website um, uh, during the month of January 2020, he'll be donating the profits to the Bushfire Appeals. Um, so you can actually buy these books from um, uh other places like Amazon or Dimix or the Book Depository, um, but Craig's making the special offer. So if you if you feel like you want to go through and buy the books and help the fire the bushfire appeal, it's a good opportunity. And I'll go through and put the links to Craig's website, so where you can go through and buy these things, as well as what Craig does uh, and all his social media uh, on uh, the written version of the podcast. So if you go to the show notes, you'll find all that information and that details there as well as a few pictures and give you an idea of what Craig looks like as well. <laughs> um, and the other thing that Craig mentioned was that he had donated to the Bushfire Appeal and um, there are a number of uh, ways in which you can do that. Um, just beware of the, the scams, but um, 
there are some government-based ones that are the place to focus on. And he was talking about redirecting the family holiday in the middle of the year to go and um, reconnect with some of these local communities where the the bushfires have been prominent. So I think for all of us, um, donating as much as we can possibly afford, however small that might be, um, and then going back to these communities when they're ready to take uh, visitors to to uh, support the community by local and you know just help help them recover in that way. We hope you've enjoyed this episode on what it's like to be a travel writer uh, and guidebook writer. As always, you can find this episode and other episodes on our website at www.australianhiker.com.au through Podbean and Apple Podcasts. In our next episode, to be released in two weeks' time, we're going to be looking at games to play on the trail. So if you're taking younger younger family members and wanting to keep them active and involved, uh, we're going to look at some lighter weight options for games to play on the trail. And this also goes for adults as well. It's not just for kids. Yeah, as long as they're not too competitive, isn't that right, Tim? <laughs> that's right. Okay, that's all for me. Bye for now. And bye from me.